God, we look to the hills for shelter. But God, we know that you are our shelter. God, we may look to our money, our savings account, but God, you are our security. God, may we look to you, may we fix our eyes on you, our prize. God, may we love you the way you have loved us. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Be seated. We all feel like the world is not what it should be, and we are not what we should be. That's because a God of love and power created this world to reflect his goodness, glory, and beauty. He brought humanity into being to be his companions and to partner with him in extending the goodness of his reign, stewarding his world to greater levels of wonder and praise. Under the reign of God, all things flourish, and humans cooperate with God for his glory and the life of the world. But have we lived up to that purpose? Sadly, no. We chose to assert our own wishes onto God's world. We rejected his reign in favor of ruling ourselves. But when the reign of God is pushed out, the reign of death and hell moves in. To restore his reign to the world, God must do something about human evil. He will have to judge large-scale evils like genocide and slavery, as well as the pride, greed, and apathy that we all have contributed. Only through God's judgment can hell be banished and the world put right. But how can human evil be judged without humans suffering the judgment? On our own, we can't avoid it. But out of his generous grace, God has done what we could not do. He became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could be rescued and restored to our purpose. Jesus did this by living the life of servanthood and love that we were designed to live. And when Jesus gave his life on the cross, God poured on him the judgment for our evil so that we could be made right with God. Then, at the resurrection of Jesus, the return of God's reign began and the power for a new way of life was unleashed by his Spirit. What does that mean for us? It means that all people can now turn away from self-rule and be restored to God and to their purpose. By trusting in the work of Jesus, we receive forgiveness and join with local communities of God's people committed to living for the glory of God and the life of the world. Together we practice the way of God's kingdom and announce the good news of His grace to everyone we know until the day when he completes his work and all his people are resurrected into the life of God's restored world. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Romans, chapter 8. 
It's on page 944 of the Bibles under your seats. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemptions of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope... I'm sorry, I read that wrong. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what, it, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. morning. I'm Michael. I'm one of the elders here. Would you uh, join me in prayer for one second before we begin? Father, I need your help. Holy Spirit, would you, would you stand within me and would you speak through me? God, would you also give us understanding of your word and would you help me, a weak vessel, Would you help me to communicate clearly and faithfully 
God, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we may behold wonderful things from your work. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Forgive me for my emotions with this. Um, In preparing this, um, I preach a lot to myself. And so I hope that as I do that and as I try to um, believe the things that God has given to me here, um, that you would find it of some help to you too. So as we finish up our Gospel and Life series, we've been looking at how we can practically relate the Gospel to the various issues in life. And Today, my assignment is to talk about the Gospel in our suffering. Now, I don't think I have to convince you all too much that we all go through some very difficult things in life. Suffering comes in various forms. We experience it in different degrees of severity. It doesn't matter how young or how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. It doesn't matter where you live, what your income is or isn't. We sometimes suffer as a consequence of our own bad decisions and of our own sin. But we can also encounter great suffering apart from any wrongdoing of our own. In fact, the whole book of Job in the Bible, it chronicles a man who loses everything except his life. And he endures some of the worst suffering imaginable, in spite of the fact that the Bible tells us that he was blameless, that he was upright, God-fearing, and he shunned evil. Now, for most of us, this raises the question, why would God allow that? In her song, Blessings, musical artist Laura Story contemplates the trials and the sufferings that we experience as Christians. And she asks these questions in her lyrics. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? You see, her poignant words make us consider that maybe, maybe we don't understand our suffering in the same way that God does. And just think about your own life, and you're going to find that you're in one of three categories. You're either just coming out of a period of suffering, you're suffering now, or you'll soon be entering a period of suffering. See, we don't need to look for it or ask for it because it'll find us. So the question on the floor today is not whether or not you or I will suffer. The real question is, how will we suffer? Will we try our hardest to avoid it? Will we live in constant fear of it? Or will we despair of it and feel like there's no hope? And I believe this is how most people deal with their suffering. But today, Paul addresses those three concerns of suffering with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, again, is the good news, the announcement that Jesus Christ has come to fix 
fix what's wrong in you and me by becoming one of us. He came to live the life that you and I could not live and to die the death that you and I deserved because of our sin against a holy God. But how does this good news relate to our suffering? And is there really any good news in our suffering? Well, to put today's passage in proper context, we need to look at what Paul has said just prior to verse 18. As many of you know, the first seven chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans is an explanation of the gospel and how we're made righteous by God, not by what we do, but by what God has done for us by his Holy Spirit. And then here in chapter 8, Paul begins to show us the practical implications of this righteousness. And he explains that when we consider what God has done for us and in us, then it will result in a righteousness that's displayed through us. And he says this in Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So the way that this inward righteousness is displayed through us really begins in our minds with how we think as we live each day. He goes on to explain that if we're led by the Spirit, then our relationship with him has so fundamentally changed that now we relate to him differently. Now we relate to him as our Abba Father. And then he says something, and if you follow attention, uh, pay attention in your, your Bibles, follow along with me in Romans 8. He says something in verse 17 that should really catch our attention. He says, if we are indeed God's children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul connects our present suffering with our future glory. And this is important because he'll come full circle with this connection at the end of the passage, and we'll see why. But before we look at why, I want us to consider an important distinction that Martin Luther gave to the church, because I think it's critical to how we think about our suffering. Now, Martin Luther is probably best known for the 95 theses that he nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in 1517. But maybe his more impactful work came in the following year because he wrote a series of 28 resolutions to defend those 95 theses. And in a somewhat quiet way, and in an odd way, by Martin Luther, he basically set off a nuclear bomb in the church by calling attention to two ways that we tend to think about God and we interpret Scripture. Now, one way he called a theology of glory. And the second way he called a theology of the cross. Now, of course, I'm just giving you the abridged version of this, but Luther's primary argument was that we as created beings, we shouldn't speculate about who God is or how he should act based on our common sense or how we might do things. Now, this wasn't an original concept thought out by Luther, but he just gave it a name, and he called it a theology of glory, and he was referring to human glory. So as we think about our suffering, we need to understand that we all have this tendency to be theologians of glory. 
that our theology is built on our expectations of what we think God should be, what we think God should do. So we often think of God as just a bigger, better, infinite version of ourselves. And so we interpret our experiences and even Scripture in light of that self-made image that looks a whole lot like us. Now, naturally, we anticipate that this God would think and act like we do, except on a much grander scale. This is why we view our suffering as something that's to be avoided at all costs. See, as theologians of glory, we reason that a God full of mercy, of love, and compassion, surely he wouldn't allow us to suffer so much. Because that's not how we would do things if we were God. So we often try to find ways to avoid or minimize the difficult and painful things in life. You see, theologians of glory see suffering as the obstruction in life that prevents us from reaching our full potential or our human glory. Now, by contrast, Luther argued that a true theologian, then, is a theologian of the cross. And what he meant by this is that we must build our theology in light of God's own revelation of himself to us, and specifically on the cross. Because the cross is where we see what God is really like and how he relates to us in our suffering. Now, we relate to people based on merit, right? We keep scorecards. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. But if you're unkind to me, well, that's a different story, right? But on the cross, we see a God who relates to us much differently. Instead of merit and works, he gives us grace. We rebel against a holy God. And instead of meeting out justice on you and me, the ones who deserve it, we see that justice being carried out on his sinless son. See, it's counterintuitive. This is why it's shocking for us to hear Jesus talk about how his kingdom operates. He speaks of greatness, and he says, if you want to be first, then you must be last. And whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I want us to consider then that the cross is much more than an atonement. When we look at the cross, what appears to us as apparent weakness is actually God's power at work. When we look at the cross, what seems like foolishness to others is actually God's infinite wisdom. And when it looks like Jesus can't even save himself from the horrors of the cross as he hangs, he's actually saving all those who were given to him by the Father. Now, author Carl Truman points out that God is doing something much more than we think as we look at the cross. And he says this, If the cross of Christ, the most evil act in human history, can be in line with God's will and be the source of the decisive defeat of the very evil that caused it, then any other evil can also be subverted to the cause of good. 
And just as God brought great blessing through the suffering of Jesus, if you and I are united to Christ, we will not only suffer like our Lord did, but we'll also experience great blessing through that suffering. This is why Luther says theologians of the cross are able to call a thing what it is. In other words, we're able to face suffering head-on and accept it, not because we like it, not because we think suffering itself is good, but it's because we see God hidden and working in our suffering. So we trust in what he's accomplishing through it. So here's my first point, and sorry it took me so long to get there. Because of the gospel, we suffer patiently because the best is yet to come. Now, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And that word consider in the ESV is really reckon in the King James. And he uses an accounting term. And the picture Paul draws for us is a scale. He says the future glory that awaits us is so great, it's like putting a feather on one side of the scale. And he says this represents our present suffering. And then on the other side of the scale, he puts a ton of gold bricks. And he says, this represents our future glory that we're waiting for. You see, the one doesn't even compare to the other. It's not worth comparing. But because the gospel allows us to see the world from God's perspective, it lifts this veil from our eyes. And we begin to get a sense of what God is up to and of the way that things should really be. And that makes us groan in anticipation of its fulfillment. I want us to notice two things. First, Paul links our groaning with the groaning of creation. And this highlights the fact that our sin is so destructive, it's so pervasive, that even creation doesn't escape suffering. Second, what's interesting is that we normally think of groaning as this cry toward futility and death. And yet Paul speaks of this groaning as a cry toward life and redemption. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, our suffering may be accompanied by groaning, but it's the groaning of eager anticipation of what God is doing. And when Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit, he's telling us that this world can only give us a sampling, a foretaste of the full harvest that we'll experience at a later time. But the temptation is for us to be impatient with what God is doing in our lives right now. And as Paul David Tripp warns, if we don't keep the eyes of our heart focused on the paradise that's to come, we'll try to turn this fallen world into the paradise that it will never be. You see, as disciples of Jesus, we're resolved that the pain and the difficulties we experience in this life are well worth it. Because we know that there's indescribable joy at the end of that pain. And if you're alienated from God, if you're not a Christian, then your suffering will only diminish and destroy 
your pursuit of happiness and pleasure in this life. You'll feel cheated. You'll feel shortchanged because this is your best life now. But this isn't true of those who are in Christ. As Paul stated earlier, it's because we have this relationship with God that we are made co-heirs with Christ. See, we not only share in Christ's sufferings, but we also share in Christ's inheritance. Now just think about that promise. What Christ has inherited belongs to you and me too. And Paul says that part of this great inheritance is the redemption of our bodies. Now, right now, we have bodies that are racked with pain, weakness, and decay. And it takes away our ability to fully enjoy things in this world. But in the future glory that Paul speaks of, we will be so conformed to his image that our redeemed bodies will allow us to enjoy God and all his gifts with everlasting joy. And it's because we have this eternal perspective that we can literally call our present suffering momentary. And we can be patient in it. Because this, this is not our best life now. For us, the best is yet to come. See, theologians of human glory won't get this. But theologians of the cross understand you don't get the glory of Easter without the suffering of Good Friday. And in the same way, we won't be glorified with him unless we also suffer with him now. We may not enjoy the present suffering, but we can be patient and we can trust God for 20, for 50, for 100 years if God wills. Because we know that he's preparing us for trillions upon trillions of years of ever-increasing joy with him. These aren't just thoughts that we use as virtual escape from our suffering. See, Paul isn't denying that the suffering exists, and neither should we. In fact, he's acknowledging that the suffering may be so great and feel so unbearable that we won't even know what to say or how to pray. But the gospel gives us confidence to endure suffering patiently because we know that our God is with us and our God is for us. He says in verse 26, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, as theologians of glory, we picture ourselves using all of our strength to cling to Jesus. But as one author puts it, the gospel is not a command to hang on to Jesus. It's a promise that no matter how weak your faith and how unsuccessful your efforts might be, it's God who is always hanging on to you. Paul reminds us that there will be times when we're at a complete loss for words and we can't even cry out for help that the best we can do is groan. But what gives us confidence is that the Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts, he understands our groans even better than we do. And he translates that exasperation into prayers before our Father. I want you just to stop and consider how incredible it is that the Spirit of God himself intercedes for you and me. 
Don't gloss over that truth. God is with us, and God is for us. And we need to remember this. Because if we're honest, we would admit that there are things that God has brought in our lives that we would never pray for ourselves because they've been way too difficult, way too painful. But I bet those are some of the same things that you would point to now, or maybe you will in years to come. And you'll say that because of those things, God taught me, God humbled me, God changed me. Because of that suffering, God used He used it to help me persevere in my faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I usually want to pray for the path of least resistance, of minimal suffering, or even just to avoid it altogether. So Paul says two important things here. One, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And two, that the Spirit prays according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit steps in to intercede and pray for us what ought to be prayed for. Now, this concept isn't foreign to you parents. There are things that you pray and do for your kids that ought to be done because they simply don't know how or they lack the ability to do it themselves or maybe they're too afraid to do it. So what does God pray for us? Well, among the many things he prays for us, we know from Scripture that he specifically prays for our perseverance and sanctification through our suffering. Look at John 17. We get a glimpse of how Jesus prays for us. And he prays this. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, many of you have been prayed for by people in this community, and you know what it's like to feel encouraged, lifted up, and loved when another brother or sister intercedes for you. How much more would it help us to remember in our suffering that God himself is praying for us? The great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. We know that he is praying for me. As we look at what Jesus doesn't pray for us, it's interesting that he doesn't want us to be removed from the trouble in this world. Instead, he prays for us to persevere in the midst of it. That's interesting. Why is that? It's because our biggest problem isn't really what we think it is. We may think our biggest problem is suffering and discomfort, But our biggest problem is sin. See, it's our sin that separates us us from God, not our suffering. Some of you may be thinking, well, but doesn't Jesus care about my pain and my suffering now? The short answer is yes, he does. But are we asking as theologians of glory or as theologians of the cross? See, God cares deeply about our present suffering. 
But when we look at the cross, we see that there's something infinitely bigger at stake. On the cross, we see the eternal suffering and torment that we deserve being placed upon his sinless son. And so we know that God cares about us. But it tells us something different. It tells us that he's most concerned about our problem of eternal suffering. The cross, then, reveals a God that permits temporary suffering so that you and I will never suffer eternally. And many of you are familiar with the testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata. In a diving accident, she suffered a spinal injury as a teenager that left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. And in the early stages of her quadriplegia, she questioned God and she struggled with her purpose and existence in life, not wanting to go on with the disability. But she recalls these ten words from a close friend that she says changed her life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. You see, God is with us, and God is for us. And he uses our suffering not to ruin our faith, but just to reveal what's there. He uses our suffering to loosen our grip on the love of this world so that he might be our first love. He uses suffering to remind us that we're citizens of a different kingdom. And he uses suffering to keep us from living under the delusion that we don't really need him as much as we do. See, he wants you to have everlasting peace and everlasting joy. And in this way, I think Laura's story is right. The trials of this life are his mercies in disguise. You see, you and I will suffer many things in in life, but our confidence in the gospel and in our suffering is this, that if we are united to Christ, we will never, ever suffer condemnation and suffering and separation from God. So as we look at the cross, we suffer patiently because the best is yet to come. We suffer confidently because we know that our God is with us and he's for us. And we have to remember these two things in order to understand and believe what Paul says in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now he's not saying that all things are good and that this applies to everyone. But he is saying that for those who are committed to him, to those who love God, he's using both the good and the bad things in our lives to accomplish his purposes. So here's my last point. The gospel gives those who love God the ability to suffer with hope because our God is in control. Now, what this verse tells us about the nature of God is really quite astounding. Paul tells us that regardless of the circumstances in life, God is not only with us, God is not only for us, but he's actively doing something about our suffering now by working out his divine purposes in our lives. You see, he's sovereign over every second of our lives, and Paul wants us to see that. He tells us this because when suffering comes, 
we often feel as though everything is falling apart in our lives, that it's all gone wrong. It scares us. It makes us anxious. It makes us angry. Oftentimes, we even make our own suffering worse because we view it as a punishment or a prison that we need to escape from. Instead, the gospel tells us that we should view it not as a prison, not as punishment, but as the process that God is using to conform us to the image of Christ. So Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, excuse me, and those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is known as the golden chain of salvation because it tells us the order in which we're saved. What this tells us is that unlike you and me, God is not shocked. God is not confused. God is not caught off guard by the suffering that comes in our life. Why? It's because he's Lord over all of it. I've always wondered why Paul needed to include these two verses right after verse 28. Verse 28 to me just sounds so good by itself. I used to think those two verses seemed out of place. But then having suffered a few things myself, I've discovered it's really not a great help to a sufferer to just abstractly say things like, ah, don't worry, it'll all work out. So Paul doesn't just leave us with this grand statement that God will work all things together for good. But he tells us why we can hope in this. See, the overarching truth to understand from this golden chain is that from start to finish, our salvation is the work of God alone. And it's clear that each link in this chain is something that only God can do, only God can control. But some of us have a truncated view of our salvation. We think of it only as something that happened to us in the past. And in the meantime, that we're supposed to hang on the best that we can, and God will just meet us on the other side. The Bible doesn't speak of our salvation that way. The Bible speaks of our salvation in three tenses, and it says that we were saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. In other words, from your conversion to your final glorification, God is at work and he's causing all things to work together for our good and for his glory. And this tells us that our suffering isn't random. Our suffering isn't meaningless. It tells us that what God is doing is turning suffering on its head and he's using it to serve an eternal purpose beyond this present life. The problem is that if we don't see that, we're going to be confused. We're going to be angry at God, wishing that we had a different life. And as a kid, there was a cartoon I would watch, and it was called Tudor Turtle. Have any of you ever seen this? Maybe I'm the only one. That's okay. But the plot of this cartoon was that Tudor Turtle would always go to his friend, Mr. Wizard. And he would go to his friend, Mr. Wizard, to use his magic so that it would change his destiny in life. 
But whatever new destiny he was given, it would always result in catastrophe. And he'd end up crying out, Mr. Wizard, Mr. Wizard, come save me. And the wizard would oblige and rescue Tudor Turtle from his misery. And he'd bring him back to his old life. And each episode would always end with Mr. Wizard giving this advice to Tudor Turtle. Be just what you is, not what you is not. Folks that do this are the happiest lot. See, many of us are like Tudor Turtle. We want God to change our destiny, or we wish that we had someone else's life, because we think it's all gone wrong in our lives, and we constantly want a do-over. But what if, what if instead of seeing our suffering as prison or a punishment, that we saw it for what it really is, his sovereign plan? I think we'd be able to look at our suffering a lot differently. Maybe in our prayers, instead of praying for God to give us a different destiny, we would start praying that God would give us a different perspective to teach us, to sanctify us, to conform us through it. This is why Paul traces our salvation all the way back to eternity past, and he runs all the way up that unbreakable chain to our glorification. So that whatever suffering that we experience in this life, we look all the way up and down that chain with hope because we see God's sovereign grace in saving us each step of the way. And as R.C. Sproul says about hope, hope is not taking a deep breath and hoping things are going to turn out all right. It's the assurance that God is going to do what he says he will do. Now, earlier I referenced one of my spiritual heroes, Johnny Erickson Tata. The church has looked to her for decades as an example of how to handle suffering. And in my humble opinion, I think she's like a modern-day Job. She and her husband are great examples of what it means to be theologians of the cross. You would think that a spinal cord injury that made her quadriplegic was enough suffering for one person to bear in their life. But years later, she started experiencing chronic pain in her back and her hips from scoliosis. She had developed a weakened spine from sitting in a wheelchair for most of her life. And then some years after that, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. In a recent testimony, she shares something that her husband said that I think is a really helpful example of seeing our gospel in our suffering. Listen to what she shares here. One day when my husband Ken was driving me home from chemotherapy, we discussed how sufferings are like those splashovers of hell, those gritty, gut-wrenching reminders of the horrors that Christ rescued us from. As Ken pulled into our driveway, we then wondered, then what are splashovers of heaven? Are they easy? Are those the bright times when everything's going right? And after a long silence, Ken looked at me with wet eyes, and he whispered, No, Johnny, it's when we see Jesus in our splashover of hell. You see, this is a theology of the cross, not a theology of glory. Because it doesn't only see God in the victories in life when there's no suffering. 
This kind of life doesn't focus on our victories, but it focuses on the one who is victorious for us. See, the gospel may not rescue us from our present suffering, but it gives us something even more valuable. It tells us the one who is with us in our suffering. It tells us the one who is in control of our suffering. And it tells us the one who is leading us all the way home to glory. I have two applications for us today to help us suffer patiently. And for those who want to come alongside and help someone who's suffering, one of the best ways that you and I can help is by actually not doing something. And take it from someone whose first instinct is to want to fix and resolve problems. I've learned that God uses suffering to teach us that we're not God. And we can't fix everything because it's not our job. Problem is, we're uncomfortable with someone else's pain and suffering We don't know what to do with it, and so we think we should just help them make it go away as quickly as possible. So we'll tell them what they should do, and then we'll give them a to-do list. Or we'll pray for them one week, and the next time we see them, we'll just expect that everything should be back to normal. Well, this doesn't help them suffer patiently. Because when things aren't back to normal right away, it actually makes their suffering worse. They feel angry, they feel guilty, they feel shamed that their situation really hasn't changed in spite of our words and prayers. And don't get me wrong, I'm not telling you not to pray for people. But let's not try to fix each other. Instead, I found that listening to and empathizing with a sufferer is a way better help to them. Because they no longer feel like they're stuck in this dark pit of despair alone. By listening, genuinely trying to understand what they're going through. It's like you're crawling in that dark pit with them. And you're bringing a flashlight. They feel hope because they're reminded that they don't have to walk alone in that darkness. And for those suffering now, you may not even feel like you have the strength to pray. And you may only be able to groan right now. And if that's you, can I just crawl in the pit with you for a second and just share some tools that I've used that have helped me, and maybe they'll help you too. When you and I can't find the words or the strength to pray on our own, we can always pray the Psalms as our own prayers. The Psalms often give us the words to pray when we can't come up with the words ourselves. And if you find that you can't even do that right now, Could I just encourage you to ask a friend to read the Psalms aloud for you and with you? I found Psalm 77 is a good psalm to pray and to meditate upon. In addition to using the Psalms, a helpful hymn that I sung to myself is How Firm a Foundation. And what I love about this hymn is that it's unique. See, most songs and hymns are written for us to speak to or about God. But the uniqueness of this hymn is that God is speaking to us. So as I close with these lyrics by John Rippon, I just want you to hear God speaking to you in your suffering. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, 
My grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Father, suffering is hard. Suffering can shift our focus inward toward ourselves. So we need help from outside of ourselves. And we thank you that you are our Abba Father. Our Father who comforts us, who conforms us in our suffering. And we thank you that you're saving us even now. And you're doing a sovereign work in our lives. And though we don't always see that, God, would you help us to see so clearly, to see your gospel, that we would walk patiently, that we would walk confidently and hopefully in our suffering. God, we trust you and we love you. Amen. Amen.